Hello and welcome to Let's Code Physics. Hello and welcome to vPython for Beginners. In the world of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, coding is now an integral part of just about any educational program and career. Thanks for visiting Let's Code Physics. Have you ever wanted to bring coding into your classroom? Or maybe you've introduced some computation, but you want to move to the next level. Then I have some resources for you. Let's go code some physics. Welcome to Physics Alive! I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, students, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, apply physics in their careers, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Good Physics Day, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with W. Brian Lane. He's currently a visiting physics faculty member at the University of North Florida, the creator of the YouTube channel Let's Code Physics, and a contributing member of the Pickup Community, which is the Partnership for Integration of Computation into Undergraduate Physics. With nearly 600 videos on his YouTube channel, he has a tutorial or coding tip for almost every level of physics class. Video series include vPython for beginners, coding for high school physics, computational problems for intro physics, and tracker for beginners. Today we talk about Brian's YouTube channel, Let's Code Physics, the online coding platforms he recommends, and how to get started coding in the classroom. We also talk about the workshops and exercise sets available through the Pickup community, and then branch into a different topic, replacing lab reports by asking students to write a letter home, describing their experiments to mom or dad or sister or the dog. Okay, maybe not the dog. So I've discovered that a lot of physics teachers are on Twitter. In fact, Ariel Paul, director of development at FET, clued me in on this, saying something about how uh, high school teachers can't be on Facebook because of firewalls and whatnot, but they can be on Twitter. So I've been spending a lot more time on Twitter to help folks find my show, but to also learn more about the community and what other great work is being done. And Brian Lane is an active member of the Twitter community, and we first got in touch through that social medium. So hello, Brian, and welcome to Physics Alive. Thank you, Brad. And uh, oh, what is it you say? Good physics day. Yes. Oh, excellent. You can use my line. Thank you. I, I, <laughs> I don't even know where I came up with that. It just happened. <laughs> I don't know. But next time I'm, I'm in seeing an AAPT session, I'm starting with that. So okay. <laughs> uh, could you give your, our listeners a quick intro of your background and where you are right now? Sure. So I have a PhD in theoretical condensed matter physics. Uh, I spent uh, just over a decade at a small liberal arts university uh, in a primarily teaching role. Uh, I've spent that time also getting into physics education research, even though that was not my PhD. I've, I've adopted it as a second research field. And I'm currently a visiting faculty member at the University of North Florida. Yeah, oh, yeah. Adopting PER. That's kind of what I did. Uh, in my my uh, graduate research was not on that. It was on laser physics. And as fun as that was, I sort of learned that no, that's not my thing. And I mean, much, much like you've said in previous episodes and some of your guests have said, you know, I, I like condensed matter. It's interesting. I like doing it. But PER is the thing that keeps me up at night and wakes me up in the morning. Mm, nice. <laughs> uh, so I want to start by talking about your YouTube channel, Let's Code Physics. Uh, I've checked out some of these videos and I've got to say, uh, 
when I'm ready to dive in and learn some more by, about Python and introduce it to the intro class, I'm definitely going to be using these videos uh, as, as a resource. And maybe you're going to help uh, convince me that, that this is something that I, I can do. So uh, yeah, these videos are really nicely done. Uh, your demeanor is very approachable and friendly, and it, uh, it helps me to believe that I can actually do this. So it looks like the recent channel highlights uh, a few video series. Uh, I'll just share a few with our listeners. Uh, VPython for Beginners, 53 episodes. Coding for High School Physics, 52 episodes. Uh, computational problems for intro physics is a supplement for the matter and interactions textbook, I believe, uh, with 16 videos. Uh, tracker for beginners with nine videos. Uh, before this, starting back in 2015, a, a big focus of the channel uh, was Let's Code videos, a spinoff on Let's Play in the gaming world. So I'm curious, uh, what led you to create a YouTube channel in the first place? So basically, the birth of Let's Code Physics came from two things colliding in my life at one time. Uh, I was attending a computational physics session at a summer AAPT meeting where a lot of the focus of a lot of the talks was on giving students starter codes. Rather than having students start with scratch uh, and making the code from nothing, the strategy is to give students some code, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, uh, that they then take and modify. And so I thought, well, that's a really great idea. That was a major hangup in my classes about, uh, you know, students would, would have to start, you know, from line one. This makes it a lot more approachable and you can get to the physics a lot faster. But I was still feeling like it would be nice if the students knew where the code came from, you know, so it's not just this mysterious text that's handed down to them. It was at the same time that I was learning to play FTL, a kind of physics-y computer game. It's very... Uh, algorithmically procedural based, uh, but I was learning how to play FTL by watching my brother's YouTube channel where he has the most number of FTL videos out of any YouTuber that I know of. And so he was releasing these Let's Play videos. I would watch them to learn how to play this game by watching him and kind of copying what he did. And I was having this thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could show my students me developing the code and they kind of follow along. And so these two things collided in my head and I had this idea for a Let's Code physics channel. And I, I literally texted him saying, uh, I wanna make a YouTube channel called Let's Code Physics. It's like a Let's Play channel, but for programming, put my phone in my pocket, went into another session and I came out and he had made a logo and channel intro for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, wow. Without me asking, I should add. <laughs> so you had no choice but to start. Yes, exactly. Yes, the channel was born right then. Actually, that, that's what happened to my last uh, guest that I interviewed, uh, Kate Ruby, and she said her sister bought her a microphone. And so she, at that point, had no choice but to start a podcast. So sometimes you just get a little boot out the door and, and yeah. off you go. Oh, no. So, so that's great. I mean, oftentimes I hear about uh, sort of in, in entrepreneurial communities that uh, you look around and say, gee, I wish that thing was there. And instead of lamenting that it's not, you go and you make it yourself. So how has this channel evolved over time? So it started, it started there with that, that let's code idea, but now I see there's all of these different series of, of videos. Um, so did you start seeing a need in the, the education community for, for some of these series that you started? Yeah, so I was originally very hesitant to make straight up tutorials because I wanted to avoid you know, the whole lecture thing online as well as in my in-person classes. I wanted it to be an example. I wanted it to be more motivational rather than informational. But I did see that the community had this need where a lot of these computational assignments that, that physics educators are giving out use 
a very small set of common computational methods. So things like numerical integration, Monte Carlo, Euler-Kromer method, things like that, where we're using the same tools over and over again. And so it made sense to me to start making tutorials about the computational tools themselves, as well as about the physics application. Because if I make a series, for example, about Euler-Kromer, anybody who's doing computation in physics one can just drop those tutorials into their classes. And it doesn't matter what their application is, they can go directly into the application in class. I also started getting requests for advanced topics. In the comments, people would say, can you do a series on quantum mechanics? Can you do a series on ENM? You know, both to kind of introduce the topic as, you know, a supplement for the textbook, because the more times you hear the information, the, the better it's going to stick, but also to then introduce some computational activities for them. And so I started to kind of pick off one by one those, those upper level topics. Now, is, is vPython sort of becoming or has become a, a standard in, in both education and research at this point? Python has definitely become a leading favorite. Um, I don't know whether it's, it's a favorite in terms of absolute numbers, but if you look, for example, at the pickup collection of exercise sets, uh, most of those have a Python application on them. It's definitely the most popular among the, among the pickup community. Um, so Python's become popular and based off of that, uh, we have this, uh, this additional library vPython, which has the added benefit of sites like glowscript.org will host vPython for free without any installation required, without any downloads required, because it turns out another major hurdle of incorporating computation into the curriculum is this generation of students lack of experience with installing files, you know, and, and even maintaining file systems and things like that. So these online coding platforms like Glowscript or p5.js really help streamline the process because I can give my students a link to my code, they can run it in the browser, they can edit it in the browser and save it to the cloud. So it's, it's become very popular if only because of its convenience. One of the things that I note for myself is is maybe even wondering what, like what software to use, what, what do I need to install? And there's, it seems like sometimes there's almost just too much lingo around it and, and making sure that, and then we also give students uh, programming that's going to, to kind of look like what they're going to, to do next. So I guess if, if on one hand, if Python is, is a fairly common language that, that looks similar to others, that's a, that's a good place, but yeah. So is, is something like GlowScript something you would recommend for, uh, for folks just getting into, you know, bringing some pr programming into the class? Absolutely. So for example, nearly all of my videos have the code available for free. And so nearly all of them uh, either link to glowscript.org or trinket.io, just depending on whichever was simpler. So if you watch one of my videos, you go into the description there on YouTube and it'll say code available here and there's a link and you can take exactly what I was working on in the video. You can program along with me in the video and then you can take that copy to your own folder and deploy it to your class. That sounds okay. like some good examples of things I should put up on my show notes page. So you can go yeah, and check that out. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. Another thing I'll, I'll, I'll say to answer your concern about you know, getting students to see stuff that looks like what they'll use later. The analogy I like to use for programming languages is a lot like learning a musical instrument. Your first instrument that you learn is very challenging because you're having to learn the instrument and you're having to learn to read music. The second instrument you learn is almost always easier 
because you already know the music, right? The, the, the staves have not changed. The rules about where the notes go have not changed unless you learned viola, in which case I'm sorry. Okay. Um, but you know, the stuff about the sheet music has not changed. You're just, losing, you're just learning how it works out in this particular application. That's a lot like with, with learning programming. Once you learn one language, it's easy to pick up another because they almost all have the same structures. They all have loops, they all have if then, they all have arrays. And so you just have to learn how do I construct an array in this language? And they all have about eight hours of troubleshooting behind each line that you make. And they're all equally frustrating, yes. <laughs> oh gosh. So are, are you finding, or I should say, do you hear from, from teachers at different high schools and colleges who are using your videos and, and get feedback from them or kind of find out where they're being used? Yes, the big moment for this was shortly after I started the channel. It might have been a year after I started the channel, I was at an AAPT meeting and I had my Let's Code Physics button on, which if you find me at a meeting, I will give you one of these buttons Ooh, this, okay. to anybody listening to, to the podcast. And people would point to me and say, you're the guy on Let's Code Physics. I use your videos in my class. And oh, so that's cool. I had, I had fans at the meetings. That, that I had never met before. And it was just really neat. And, and eventually these buttons have spread their way around the meeting where people wear them back to the next meeting. And so like, I'll see somebody running a session and they have a Let's Code Physics button on. I'm like, oh, hey, it's a listener. All right. Oh, uh, that's cool. So do you have any particular favorite episodes on your channel right now? So anytime I answer this question, I'm probably supposed to tell people what the most helpful episodes are before I say what my actual favorite is. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you know, you always want to make sure you're, you're directing people to the, to the thing that, that they'll like the best. Uh, probably my, my biggest successes have been uh, two series, the Euler Cromer series, uh, which is very basic. Here is how you solve a force in motion problem using just a couple of lines of it's technically numerical integration, but you can bill it as rearranged physics equations right? Because it's just a rearranged slope equation. Um, and the vPython for beginner series, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, consistently, when I look at my analytics, those are the ones that are always at the top for views. They always spike in August and January when semesters are starting because students are Googling, what in the world do I do with this vPython thing? And it comes up. Um, so those have been the biggest successes. But my favorite probably uh, has been uh, about six months into the channel's life, I, I wanted to do something about FTL, this game that had kind of spawned the channel to begin with. And so one of the things you do in FTL, you, you are in command of a spaceship that is trying to destroy these other spaceships because they're the bad guys and you're the good guys, obviously. But one of the types of weapons that you can have is this beam weapon that you click and drag across the rooms in the other ship. And basically the more rooms you hit, the better except sometimes it's the more squares you hit the better. And sometimes you want rooms that have equipment. Sometimes you want rooms that don't have equipment. It, it depends on the type of beam that you have, but it's this interesting geometrical problem because you can start it anywhere and shift it to any angle, but it has a finite length, mm. right? So it's basically this search and evaluate algorithm that people do somewhat intuitively. Okay. And so I said, you know what? I can make a code that does this. So I made a vPython code that you can click and drag these squares to make the shape of the ship that you're fighting. And then you tell it what type of beam you have and it will do this brute force search around the geometry until you here's how to line up your beam. 
And it was a lot of fun to make because it's not terribly physics-y, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's geometry at least, but it was a lot of fun to make. It was really challenging. It required some creative user interface stuff that I usually don't do. And when I released it and shared it with the FTL community, they ate it up. <laughs> so oh, that's I great. gained subscribers that had no background in physics whatsoever who just play this game who were, and like I said earlier, this game, it involves some algorithmic thinking, like you're always devising the strategy. And that really resonates with the search procedure that I use. And so I was getting mm -hmm. comments from the FTL community. Oh, well, you have, have you tried this search algorithm? Well, you know, you can cut it in half if you consider the symmetry of the ship. Oh, well, you might be able to do this. Well, you really only need to start at the corners of each room. And so I had an episode where I just took feedback from commenters and I edited my code live based on feedback that people had given me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that was, that was a lot of fun. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, just scrolling through all of your different videos, I see so many different uh, varieties of them. And uh, I had to pause and laugh at, at one I saw a little over a year ago, maybe, um, that you had. It was the, the unboxing of the game Sector Vector. Yes. Uh, and one of the creators of that was my last, the interview I just had last week that's going to be on the air next oh week. And he had suggested right. to me, you should do an unboxing video. And I was like, yes, that'll be fun. And I'm, I'm waiting to get the game in the mail yet. And all of a sudden like, oh, somebody's already done it. Well, my students love that game. We, we uh, so that, you've, that you've been able to that. use that in, in the lab at this point? Yes, yes, that was a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm so looking forward to giving it a try. So uh, do you see yourself taking any uh, new directions with the, with the channel? It looks like some of these series are kind of wrapping up that you've had and now maybe there's some room for something new. Yeah, so basically I try to have two or three sort of major series each fall and spring. I try to sprinkle in some fun things here and there, like the like the Sector Vector unboxing video, or just a couple of weeks ago I released a Heroes Quest dungeon randomizer because Hero Quest has been re-released. I saw that one there and it that took me fun. back to my childhood. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know. Kind of like we were talking about earlier, I'm definitely more in the tutorial side now. And now that I've kind of got a base of a lot of the basic methods and, and functions that we use, I'm, I'm starting to branch out more into more course-focused content. So today I'm editing a series about uh, junior-level modern physics, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where you first learn all the weird stuff in quantum mechanics. Well, the computational stuff can really help you with that because... I can have students solve the Schrodinger equation if I give it to them in a code and we do the shooting method, for example. Um, so I'm starting to do stuff that's more course focused. Usually it's when I'm up for teaching a course, I now make a series about it and I try mm. to make it generic enough yeah. that anybody can benefit from it. Um, I'm focusing more on upper level content because I feel like I've done a lot at the intro level where you could, you could use one of my videos each week in an intro class. And another kind of off-topic one that I'm in the beginning stages of working on that I need to get back to working on is a Physics of the Wheel of Time series uh, because it's coming out on Amazon Prime. We don't know when because COVID is making everything delayed, but Robert Jordan, the author of the Wheel of Time series, was a physicist. He, he had a, was he? a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in physics. And so if you go through the series, you can kind of see some of this physics influence. And in a lot of his interviews, he talks about the connection between the one power and quantum mechanics and his interpretations of quantum mechanics and things like that. So I, I have this series outlined. I need to sit down and actually write my script for it, but I'm hoping that'll come out around the same time that the show premieres. I had no idea Robert Jordan was uh, was a, 
a physicist. Yeah, I, I read a lot of that series uh, when I was uh, in college, uh, undergraduate and grad school. I never made it to the end. At some point, I just oh, I lost it's steam, good. and and he never made it to the end, right? He he died before he end. finished it, and they yeah, had to the finish it based page, on his notes, right? Yeah. Well, the last the last chapter, most of the last chapter was written by him. Oh, okay, so okay. We don't know which parts of it are Jordan, which parts of it are Sanderson exactly, because they're kind of tight-lipped about that for good reason. But we do know that that ending was pretty much Jordan's writing. Mm -hmm. So let's shift to a different perspective. Uh, so you're involved with the organization uh, Pickup, uh, which you mentioned earlier, the Partnership for Integration of Computation in Undergraduate Physics. Uh, you can find activities and resources for Pickup at compadre.org slash pickup. The mission on this site is to, quote, create a vibrant community of educators, a forum for open discussion, a collection of educational resources, and a set of strategies and tactics that support the development and improvement of undergraduate physics education through integration of computation across this curriculum. But when you read mission statements, you realize they're not really meant for reading out loud. They're just meant no. for sounding good. They're, they're <laughs> meant for bullet points. <laughs> uh, what are some of the resources and activities that we can find on this site? So Pickup has a lot of great resources. Uh, one of the things you'll find on that page is a schedule of events, things like webinars, workshops, video recordings of previous webinars and seminars. So we had a virtual conference this past summer. All of the talks, including mine, are there available on the site through YouTube. Um, we had a little bit of a stall out this past fall, thanks to COVID taking every, up everybody's schedule. I'm hoping we can get more activities going on in the spring. Um, you can find the, uh, the collection of exercise sets. These are peer-reviewed computational activities that you can literally download and either drop right into your class or adapt with just a few tweaks. They've each got a theory section for background. They've each got an instructor guide to help you as the instructor get started. And they each have starter codes and completed codes. So you can hand the starter codes to the student and you have the completed code to grade against. Um, I, I, I should say full disclosure, I'm on the uh, synchronous meeting planning committee for pickup. And I have some, I have published one exercise set and peer reviewed one exercise set. Uh, but one of the most important resources we have, which is where our listeners can find me, uh, is the pickup Slack channel. There's a link for that on the mm -hmm. website. This is very frequent engagement. People post on this at least several times a week, just simple questions like, how would you write a computational activity about this for this class? Or I'm having this issue in my class. There's a random page where you can just, you know, talk about anything that physicists might be interested in. Um, I hang out there pretty frequently. The pickup leadership is there. Uh, a, a lot of the, the, the main names in, in computation like Bruce Sherwood are on there. Um, and, and we're really happy to answer questions. Usually folks' questions get answered within a day or so. Oh, that's great. Is is the peer review done by by members of the the pickup group? So you submit something, and there's a like a small committee that that reviews those. So the peer review process it gets reviewed by folks who have published previous articles. So in submitting a in submitting an exercise set, you implicitly agree to review future exercise sets. It gets a look over by the editors as well to make sure that everything is formatted correctly and that fits in with the appropriate course level and subject area. And so the, the body of peer reviewers in principle is growing over time as more of these exercise sets get published. As I'm beginning to explore uh, through through this podcast, some of the, the different resources that are, resources that are out there, I, I see a similarity with uh, the, the new Living Physics Portal, which also has, you can, you can contribute anything without necessarily having to have any vetted review, but there is an option for a vetted review 
that then you have to submit more details. Uh, there's there's a bit more peer review for that, and uh, just just other ways that you can kind of count these activities towards scholarship of teaching and learning. And I should mention there there so there are actually two pages on Pig Up for getting exercise sets. There's the official exercise set collection that's been peer reviewed, and then there's a Faculty Commons, which is somebody posted this thing. It hasn't been reviewed, but people don't generally spam physics teaching repositories with <laughs> no quality stuff. It just hasn't been peer reviewed yet. Um, I've been uh, I've been waist deep in the exercise set collection for the last several months because I'm conducting a, a kind of an informal survey of what's in the collection, like what subject areas are covered, what uh, course levels are covered, what languages are used, what languages are used infrequently. And so I've, I've become intimately familiar with the contents of this thing. Uh, one of the other things that I heard you mention early on with this was that uh, the idea of, of, of workshops and different meetings. So uh, is there a presence at each AAPT meeting or are there other venues? Are there workshops, uh, multi-day, maybe even multi-week that, that Pickup offers on their own? Yes. Yeah, so there's a new faculty workshop, usually in the summer. That's like everything else this year that's up in the air. But usually over the summer, there is an intensive several day long workshop where the goal is for you to become comfortable with teaching computation and to develop an activity by the end. So you leave that with an activity ready to deploy in your course. Um, and that usually becomes the folks who end up submitting activities. The folks will go to the new faculty workshop, they'll uh, play test the uh, exercise set in their class, and then they'll end up publishing it in the, uh, in the collection. Um, there is there's some presence of pickup at APS meetings uh, just depending on who's attending, there will be either a workshop or some kind of session on computation at APS. There's loads of AAPT sessions about pickup. Uh, all you have to do is look for anything that's labeled pickup or really anything with computation is going to have one of us there. Um, there's usually some kind of workshop about computation. Um, and then, like I said, we have these, uh, these webinars we offer. We took a little bit different approach this past fall where we had a very intensive, I think it was an hour and a half long seminar where we just heard about six different programming platforms rapid fire over the course of an hour and a half. And we, you weren't supposed to really, quote unquote, learn anything from it. You were just supposed to get a taste and figure out which one you were more interested in. And then each of our presenters from that session agreed to do a follow-up workshop later for folks who specifically signed up for, I want to learn more about vPython or I want to learn more about Oracle. One of the, yeah, definitely one of the things I know will help me in any new endeavor that I want to explore is just a bit more training. And uh, this is actually going to be something I bring up in my uh, invited talk for the Intro Physics for Life Sciences session at, at the, the winter meeting this year, uh, which is, you know, even me being involved in the community and, you know, sort of a member, whatever that means, uh, for, for a good seven years now, I still feel like there's that there's still so much I don't know. There's still so much I don't know how to do in the classroom that I just, I, I want to hear more from folks who specialize in doing this sort of thing. And I'd love to see multi-day workshops or week-long workshops where, where something happens because, you know, a four-hour or even a day-long workshop at AAPT isn't, is often not enough for me to really kind of get some curricular elements under under my feet. You know, something like the the modeling instruction workshop, which I did uh, in 2010, when I first got going, is that's a framework I'm still basing off of. Basically, after that workshop, I had a full curriculum for the entire semester, and and I could work from that. And I could re begin to revise that, and and I certainly hope 
I would wish for, for my own sake to see in some of these communities workshops like that, that span yeah. over a longer amount of time. Yeah, it would be great to, to kind of move things to the next step of maybe more along the lines of mentorship or a professional development, close-knit community that, or cohort that, you know, mm -hmm. kind of moves through an entire semester, an entire year together. There you go. That could be your next venture. Yeah, because <laughs> I need more venture. That's something I definitely need. Yeah. <laughs> So I'll have to say, I've honestly always been a little intimidated by coding. Uh, I've had various experiences with it in graduate school, but I just, I definitely lack confidence to teach it or, or do something new. I've dabbled with some spreadsheet computations and, and actually just this past semester at Hamilton, I taught a lab that ran some Python code, which drove uh, a linear translation stage on a Michelson interferometer. And I, I was really excited about that. That works so well. And I was totally reliant on my colleagues who developed that lab. So yeah, my, my confidence isn't so hot. How can I go about boosting my confidence and get some simple recommendations where, for where to start with coding in an intro class? Uh, there's a few things I would recommend. Um, first of all, just like we do with the students, I would recommend you start with an existing code. If you're wanting to incorporate computation in your class, don't start with a blank program. Start with something somebody has written, either from a pickup exercise set or a Let's Code Physics video or a colleague's code or something. Start with something somebody has already written and then just sort of play around with that. Um, you know, basically treat it like you would a lab experiment, right? There's a lot of similarities between computational physics and experimental physics, where you have this equipment that you're using, maybe it's physical equipment, maybe it's lines of code, and you're trying to do some physics with it. Well, before you can get to any of the physics, you have to figure out how the equipment works. And you don't really do that by, you know, reading it line by line, or by following some set of instructions, you figure it out by playing with it, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you start with somebody else's code, play around with it, ask some questions, figure out some sort of some sort of research question you want to answer, and just play around with that for you know maybe one to six months, something like that. Um, here's the piece of advice I was given in grad school when I took a high-performance computing course, which is when you want to learn a new programming language or a new programming environment, Pick a project like that, pick a toy project that you're not really seriously invested in, that you're not going to work with long-term, spend a few months working on it, get it working as well as you can, and then set it aside on the shelf and never touch it again. <laughs> because since you're using that project to learn, your brain is kind of locked into doing it a certain way. And no matter how well you learn the, the, the programming skill you're trying to assimilate, that project is never going to be top-notch right? You're always going to have the mental block yeah. with it. Move on to something else and you'll be able to, you know, launch straight to success with it because you'll be starting from a fresh start. That probably applies to more than just programming. That probably applies to a lot of skills in mm -hmm. life, I'm guessing. Um, I would also say, you know, when you're looking, when you feel comfortable with programming yourself and you're looking to, uh, uh, you know, bring it into your classroom, you know, really think about the goals behind bringing computation in, just like you do with everything else, just like you do with your lab, just like you do with your homework. Think about what the goals are. Because really there's two main categories of goals for incorporating computation. One is to support the physics, right? Again, just like in lab, you know, the experimental stuff is nice, but I really want it to reinforce what the students are learning in class. In that sense, you know, a computational activity really no different than a FET sim where it's reinforcing what you're learning in class is giving an opportunity to play with it. The only difference is in a computational activity, you're seeing what's under the hood, you know? But the other main goal is actually teaching the computational skills. So I want my students to know what numerical integration is, 
beyond finding the electric field of a ring of charge, right? I want them to see that as a skill that they can transfer from one problem to the next. And so you really have to keep those two goals uh, in mind. Like you have to, where on the dial are you in your class? Are you 90% reinforcing the physics and 10% teaching the skills? Are you 80% teaching the skills and 20% reinforcing the physics? That's going to determine what kind of activities you write, what you ask your students to do, and honestly, how much weight you place on the coding itself, right? So you might start out with just reinforcing the physics and you only get into the nitty gritty of the coding a little bit. And the other thing um, that I'll add, we have this, this has been shared a number of times at, at pickup meetings, is the scaffolding process in working with computational stuff, is you start out, you and your students start out reading code, like that's it. Can you look at, a, at, at 10 lines of Python and tell me what each of those 10 lines mm, does. Can yeah. you tell me what the number is going to spit out at the end? And that's, that's a learning objective in and of itself, is just to be able to read the code. Then you want to be able to use the code, get some kind of answer out of it, and do some kind of physics interpretation. Then you want to go from that to modifying the code. Okay, I, I had a star with a mass of 10 and a planet with a mass of 1. Let's see what happens if I change the star's mass to 20. You know, and that's it. Like that is a step in the process is just changing one of those numbers because you're slowly starting to make the code your own, mm -hmm. right? One number yeah. at a time, one line at a time. Then you get into, let me add some code, right? So let me take this code about a planet going around a star and I'm going to add a graph of the kinetic energy and potential energy versus time. And oh, I discovered conservation of energy. Don't I feel accomplished? <laughs> and so if you move along that scaffolding, you eventually become more comfortable to the point where someday you might feel comfortable writing code from scratch. Like that's really the, the end goal is people being able to write code from scratch. Wow. Thank you for that. In my experience where, where my colleague wrote this code, I, I felt an accomplishment when I could see what all the steps actually meant. And it took some time and seeing how does this, uh, how does this interact with this, this lab jack from Vernier? How, how is that going to, okay, this, inf this is an input, here's an output. And there was, there was definitely a sense of, it's like, yeah, I've, I've kind of got this without having even written it myself. And then, and then right. That next step of it's like, well, now I'm going to start making changes to this. It's like, I think I can get it to do more what I want it to do if I do this instead. So the point where, you know, your students have arrived is when they start to say, wouldn't it be cool if the code could do blank mm -hmm. and then they start messing around to do that thing. Oh uh, yeah. So I'm sure we could easily talk about some of these code ideas for, for another couple of hours and yeah. just getting my own questions answered. Although really at this point, I would just want to sit down and say, okay, let's actually start working through something. Let yeah. me, let me pull up some of these, pull up some of these videos. Oh, wouldn't, wouldn't that be a fun let's code physics video? If I took a total novice and just walked them through something and we were both on camera. Ooh, oh, there idea. you go. Okay. All right, I might be sending <laughs> you an invitation. So we'll, we'll, we'll shift gears a bit. So you've had some papers in the, the physics teacher journal, and there's one in particular that, uh, that I want to talk about. I, I found it, uh, I think back in 2014, when you, when you came up with it, it was, uh, called, uh, letters home as an alternative to lab reports. Are we talking about writing home to mom and dad, uh, you know, hugs and kisses? Here's what I did in lab. <laughs> yes. Uh, when you have your students write to someone not in the class who is not you, the professor, they tend to take it much more seriously. Because it happens when they go sit down to write their lab report and they are writing it to me, the instructor, they subconsciously or consciously are saying, Dr. Lane knows all the physics. He's the one who taught this to me. I can skip this explanation. I can skip defining this term. I can skip saying what it means to have a linear regression. I can just say, I did the thing you told me to do and here's the graph. 
And that's basically what lab reports read like, right? When they're written to right. us. Um, when they are writing to somebody outside of class, they tend to take it much more seriously because they realize, wait a minute, my mom doesn't know much physics or my, I'm writing to my brother who's five years old. He doesn't know, <laughs> you know, I, I did have a student write to her five-year-old brother. And so they really start to think about writing to an audience, which is a skill that we don't always explicitly teach students how to do, but it's a key skill in writing grant proposals and writing articles and making podcasts and YouTube videos. So you have to think about your audience. And so they start to take it more seriously. They start to deconstruct and say, well, my parents never took physics. So I better explain to them what a force is. And I better explain to them what momentum is. Oh, and I better tell them how to read a graph. Gosh, how do you read a graph? And they suddenly start to deconstruct their own understanding to the point where now they understand it better, right? We always have that experience where when you teach a concept to somebody, you learn it best for the first time. Mm, yes. And so they're experiencing that as well. They get more excited about it. The replies that I get from the parents are just so heartwarming where the parents will say, uh, well, son, I'm really glad that you're doing so well in your physics class or gosh, Sally, this was really interesting. Can you answer some questions I have that I still don't understand? And they'll get into these question and answer sessions back and forth. And I'm copied on the email. And I just watched the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, I had one student who decided to write his letters home to his grandmother. And she wrote back the first one. I almost cried because she said, uh, I'm so glad you're sharing these with me. As you know, I wasn't allowed to take physics when I was young. Oh, my. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, the student got a valuable history lesson out of this, more important than anything in, in my <laughs> class. But I've also noticed once the students go through a couple of iterations of letters home, like by about the third or fourth week, they start to ask better questions in lab because they start to process mm. during lab. How am I going to explain this to my sister? How am I going to explain this to mom and dad? And they start to use that as their guide for what they do in the lab because they say, I better make sure I understand this and ask the teacher a question because I really drew a blank last time when I was writing my letter home. Yeah. That, I guess to a, another question I was thinking about of, you know, how often do you do this? Is this a one-off or a two-off or do you do a little bit more? And yeah, I can definitely see the value of as they are doing this multiple times, they're beginning to see, oh, what is it that I should be taking out of the lab so that yeah. I can explain this better? So do you, do you have sort of a, a benchmark that's kind of worked for you? How often it's done? Basically, uh, I replaced all my lab reports with these letters home. They were getting the same content. They're not putting in section headers necessarily. In fact, I often tell them don't put in those section headers. Your mom doesn't want section headers. <laughs> but, you know, I replaced my lab reports with them and I didn't really notice any loss in the students uh, in the students' learning. Um, I've not done a formal assessment of it, I'll admit, but uh, I did meet up a couple times with a grad student, Charles Ramey, uh, he's not a grad student anymore, he's graduated, but he was a grad student at the time doing his thesis on the efficacy of letters home. Ooh. So he was having students do lab reports and letters home, and he was comparing the writing quality, the physics understanding, and he basically came to the conclusion, they're at least as good as lab reports, and in some ways they're better. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of provoking the students to think about their understanding. Um, he was actually using them in a modern physics context. So at the junior-ish level, at, which is an interesting class to use them in because that's where you get to the weird stuff in quantum mechanics. And I said, well, have you thought about assessing, 
you know, their ability to explain the weird stuff in quantum mechanics, people is like, no, no, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to turn out that they don't actually have un any understanding of this weird stuff in quantum mechanics. Yeah. Well, that's, because none that's, of us do. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually where the idea first came from. I was putting together my schedule for, uh, we've for a time had a freshman level modern physics. So you had a, a freshman level modern, your junior level modern, then your senior level quantum. Um, and the photoelectric effect experiment fell just before spring break, this one semester that I was teaching. And so just as a joke, I put in the syllabus, photoelectric effect, parentheses, go home over spring break and tell your parents you discovered the photon. <laughs> and I looked up from my screen and said, they should tell their parents they discovered the photon. This is a big deal. And so I, I wrote up the assignment uh, instructions. I have a, a, a rubric that I use to grade it. And so what I do is I just store the rubric in as an email signature. And when I reply to mm -hmm. the letter that they've sent, there it is in the email signature, I just reply to them and, and fill it out there. Um, but yeah, it's it, it offers just as good a learning activity as these lab reports, which let's be honest, do any of us write lab reports in real life like we have our students write? Oh my, this is uh, so, something cool that we're doing at Hamilton College is really yeah. trying to scaffold the, the writing a little bit better. And, and in the, the second year modern physics course, we're asking students to to write in a more formal style that looks like papers. Yeah. But exactly what you said comes up all the time, which is the students are writing it for me. Yeah. And I feel like the number one conversation I have is, no, you're not writing it for me. You're writing it for somebody who has not been in the lab, who's not seen the equipment. So somehow it's trying to get across to them that I am not their audience. So yeah, if you make somebody else their actual audience that they have to send to. Maybe they send it to a classmate. I, I always tell them, it's like pretend like you're writing it for the the class, you know, the the physics two class. Yeah, who's going to be taking this next year? Maybe they actually write to the physics two yeah. class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you have to make it a real audience. As long as it's hypothetical, they're going to say okay, whatever. But as soon as it mm -hmm. is no, these students are going to be reading this. Or in your case, I might even suggest you reach out to the math department and see if they can write it to their calc professors. Because oh. <laughs> they can understand the technical rigor, even if they're not, you know, fully familiar with the with the physics content. You know, I, I've had students do that where I say, pick your pick your favorite calculus professor and write your letter home to them. You know, if you, if there's nobody back home that that you want to write to, and my math colleagues were usually very happy <laughs> to get mm -hmm. these things and read them. But it's definitely crucial that it be a real audience because they need yeah. to know that there is something on the line with this paper that they're writing. And I should say that's that one article that I just published on a, hey, this is a cool thing I did. It led me down this whole rabbit hole of writing in the physics curriculum and how there is some good stuff out there about incorporating writing into your physics classes that we don't really have formalized. Um, I ended up doing a workshop on this and uh, MC'd a session at an AAPT meeting where we kind of got folks together and said, what are you doing with writing in the in the physics curriculum? But yeah, that, that kind of deserves a home on its own, kind of like pickup and IPLS have. Oh my know, gosh, kind of physics absolutely. Writing center or something. Okay, if I have any listeners for this show, uh, anybody want to take that up? You want to make the next, <laughs> the next portal cool. off of uh, Compadre? <laughs> I know you have you have a few other papers and, and projects, and uh, I'm I'm really trying to keep my episodes to under an hour. Uh, I, I had a couple of fails at that early on. Great conversations, but I'm gonna I'm trying to keep them a little bit shorter. So we're not gonna have time to talk about all of uh, all of your cool work. Uh, is there anything else that you're particularly excited about that you want to share? Either things you've done in the past or, or things that you're kind of working on now. 
Since I have an open mic, I'll make a plug for the Let's Code Physics Patreon, where uh, at each tier, uh, you're enabling me to make one additional video each month. Basically, if you cover, if my patrons cover the cost of a babysitter, I will release an extra video each month. <laughs> Um, now, a couple of other things I'm working on right now. Um, in the spring, I'm working on a set of interviews with some uh, junior physics majors who have had classes this fall with computation integrated into them. And I want to find out next semester, how, how do they think about computation now, now that it's had some time to percolate and they're no longer required to do it? Like, are they spontaneously using it in their next classes if they're not required? Uh, have they ever gotten to a hurdle in a research project and said, hey, I could use a code for this? Um, got, got a really, I, I think we got a pretty good framework for this thing. And I'm, I'm interested to see where the interviews go. And I'm, I'm hoping we can have some kind of uh, a preliminary presentation about this over the summer. Uh, the other thing I'll throw out is um, another project kind of out of left field. I've spent the last several years developing an educational physics-based tabletop role-playing game. So if you think D&D, huh. but physics-based as opposed to magic-based. Um, I have not unfortunately been able to do anything with this since COVID started just because life has been more hectic than I originally anticipated. Um, but I, I, I have a working version of this game. I have play tested it a couple of times at AAPT meetings, I'm working on refining it. So I mentioned it here in case there's any listeners who would be interested in play testing this, they can reach out to me. I will gladly share my draft with you if you wanna try it out with your SPS group or with your class or something. I would, I'm always happy to get play test feedback on this thing. Oh, that's that's so cool. Yeah, you know, hard getting back to that uh, mentioning Sector Vector and James O'Brien, who I talked to in the as yet to be released episode, which will be released when people hear this. You know, just thinking about gamification of of learning and the value that that can have. You know, whether it's formally in the classroom or uh, whether it's it's just a way to have fun outside of the classroom or have fun inside the classroom. Uh, I think that those are such cool endeavors. So it's cool to hear you're trying out yeah. something like that. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on my my episode today. This has been a great conversation. Uh, I, I'm so happy you reached out to me. Uh, you know, computational physics is one of those things that I've, uh, as I mentioned, I, I've been a little bit afraid of, but it's also one of those pieces that I know is so important, especially nowadays when there's more and more need for for computation and analysis of large data sets. So it's such an important skill and something for for all of us who aren't as comfortable with coding to maybe venture out and get a little more comfortable with it and to bring it into the classroom. So thank you for, for sharing those resources and for coming on the talk with me. Thank you for having me. Even though this is only episode number 12, I feel like I've already discovered so many great communities that I hadn't known about before starting this podcast. The Pickup community has so many available resources and I love seeing what Brian has contributed with his YouTube channel. He also mentioned another similar channel to me called STEM Coding so I'll give a shout out to them as well. I want to circle back to Brian's response to my question about building confidence to teach coding in class. It's a question I almost forgot to ask, but it was on a list of questions I'd sent to him before we spoke and he reminded me about it. Thank goodness he did because I think his response to this was the most pivotal one for me personally. How do I build confidence? Well, start with an existing code, not a blank screen. Play with the code like it was a lab experiment. Think about your goals for incorporating computation in the class and where you want to be on the continuum of supporting the physics to teaching computational skills. And finally, scaffold. Slowly build from reading code 
to modifying existing code, to adding to it, and eventually to writing code from scratch, if that last one is even your goal. These are such great pieces of advice and support. And what's more, I truly appreciated the compassion and encouragement with which Brian spoke. Trying new ideas, new lessons in the classroom, it isn't easy. So to have a guide who is patient, understanding, and friendly, that will make all the difference. That's something we can all bring into the classroom. And something for me to remember as I use this podcast to encourage others to explore the vast, sometimes overwhelming, world of education. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to check out any of the resources Brian and I talked about during the episode, scroll down to the show notes in your podcast player, or go to physicsalive.com code. In the notes, I've provided links to the Let's Code Physics YouTube channel and some of Brian's popular video series. I've also provided links to the Pickup Resources page that we discussed and Brian's article, Letters Home Instead of Lab Reports. You can find me at Physics Alive on Twitter, and you can also check out the Facebook Physics Alive page or YouTube Physics Alive channel. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star rating. It takes just a few seconds, but it will help future listeners find the show. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired to try something new. Your homework assignment? Go check out a Let's Code Physics video and subscribe to Brian's channel. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. I'll be talking with two members of the Biomimicry Institute, and we'll explore the intersection of physics, biology, engineering, and solving problems by nature's inspiration. You'll also finally learn about the Kingfisher in the Physics Alive logo. Until then, write, or edit, or simply just read a line or two of code, and be well.